went to a museum, Red Brother. Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. What they used to do. In the course of this institute, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about where are we from and what does it mean to be from a place uh, or to go to a place? Uh, what place do we belong to? These are complicated questions. Uh, Elaine and I begin, as we always do, with a brief framing of the issues we're going to be tackling over the next four days. And speaking of California, last year we talked about how even the name of this place has a story germane to our settler indigenous theme. The name California was derived actually from a late medieval European fantasy novel. Yeah, they had them even back then. Called The Adventures of Esplandian written by Garcia Ordóñez de Montalvo and published in 1510 in Spain. It was about a mythic island called Califia, ruled by strong black women warriors and full of great riches and worldly pleasures. A romance novel circulated among the Spanish explorers and conquistadores like treasure maps, and then they became literalized destinations. They fueled the lure of fame and fortune, a powerful factor driving Europeans ever westward in the 16th and 17th centuries. Next slide. This is a European map of the New World from 1650 that clearly shows California as an island on the left. And sorry y'all who identified with the Northwest, you're just And hey, it was good to not be on the map of the Europeans back in the day. So this was more than a century before the Spanish actually began colonizing Alta California. And when they did, they still weren't sure that it wasn't an island. This is just one telling indicator of how the European project of discovery and conquest was driven by pathological delusions of grandeur and fantasies. Spanish sailors could only see the myth of Califia, but late 18th century Franciscan missionaries could only see Alta California natives as primitives to be converted, or in the parlance of the times, reducido, reduced. The founding of the 21 missions between San Diego and Sonoma was also a colonization strategy for the Spanish, and it spelled disaster for indigenous Californians, as Jonathan Cordero has taught us so, so much about as outlined also in Elias Castillo's uh, recent book, Cross of Thorns. Blinded by European preconceptions of entitlement and superiority, neither the mariner nor the missionary could perceive the reality of California, that it was home to the most densely populated and flourishing native cultures in all of Turtle Island, diverse tribes living in varied bioregions amidst an abundant and sustainably managed ecology. Americans, for their part, were similarly drawn to California by fantasy, this time the lure of riches for the gold rush of 1848. The colonial destruction of indigenous society begun by the Spanish along the coast was finished by the Americans in the interior of the state. 
Of such as these are empires built. From the myths of Calafia to those of the motherlode, Europeans and Euro-Americans were blind to the beauty and dignity of both native and natural California. And that blindness continues today among most residents of and visitors to this place. That's why we're here doing this work. So we want to join Julie and Bob in welcoming you to a demythologized California and to this 2020 Bartimaeus Institute where devised history can be revised and dismembered stories can be remembered and delusion and denial can be transformed by God's good news of truth and justice. We began curating these spaces in 2007, as Julie mentioned, as a continuation of the Word and World Collaborative began back in 2001, almost 20 years ago. And over the last 14 years, we've held institutes in five different venues around this watershed, as well as in Saskatoon and Minneapolis. Please raise your hand if you are, oh, if you have attended two to four institutes. Yeah, okay. Nice. Anyone has been here that has been here for more than four times? Yeah, there is. Wow, good alive. <laughs> and again, overwhelming so many newcomers. So thank you all very much uh, for coming. We are very glad that you, you are here. This BKI is the culmination of five years of examining root issues of faith and justice since our big festival of radical discipleship in 2015. So here's a little catch up for those of you who haven't been with us before and a refresher for those of you who have. Are you helping with the slides? Thank you. In fall 2015, we traveled to the headwaters of the mighty Mississippi River and in collaboration with the Church of All Nations, looked at the relationship between watershed discipleship and indigenous justice. And that's where we met Jim Bear Jacobs, who was with us last year. In 2016, we looked at trauma and healing, and I began sharing the fruit out of my demon studies, especially focusing on women's issues. And then again that fall, we held an institute on the road, this time in Saskatoon, my hometown, where we partnered with Canadian colleagues to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action for, indig calls to action for Indigenous justice, specifically those that were addressed to faith communities. Several of you are here this week that worked with us in shaping that event, and of course that is Harry. Um, Sarah Stratton, is she in the house yet? Not here yet. She got many, many delays. But Jordan Cantwell was a part of helping us do that. Stand for a moment. Jordan, we are so glad you are here. Another Saskatoon. This is the first time we've had so much Saskatchewan in the house, so thank you. And then Trump happened. This is now our fourth BKI under his regime. May it be our last. Hello. May it be our last. Thank you. That's the 
Right after number 45 took oath of office in 2017, we gathered to consider again Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous 1967 explication of the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism as an analytical framework for our present crisis. It was the 50th anniversary of that prescient speech which is lamentably more relevant than ever. We, are all, we were all trying to make sense of how to work and witness under the shadow of the huge swing toward authoritarianism in the US. But through that first year, it became clear that many of us activists were being overreactive to Trumpian initiatives. So in 2018, we decided to dig in to the politics of white supremacy, endless war, and the capitalist ransacking of the earth, those three pathologies King outlined, of which Trump is merely a symptom. Then last year, the BKI focused on building literacy in the core issues of indigenous justice, which lie at the roots of the triplets King named. We listened as indigenous leaders spoke about land, the long and bitter legacy of theft and ecological destruction, as well as contemporary efforts at land reparation and repair. Law, the devising of legal theories of white entitlement and the breaking of treaty covenants, as well as organizing to construct a more equitable human rights foundation for indigenous survival and flourishing. And thirdly, language. The historic suppression as well as current struggle to rehabilitate native linguistic and cultural traditions. We are so glad, again, to have back Bob, June, Brooke, Jonathan, and Matthew to offer continuity with last year's work. All this has brought us to this year's BKI, in which we settlers strive toward a 2020 vision regarding what theologian and civil rights veteran Ruby Sales calls the roots that get to the source of the plague. This year, we explore the root as what we call settler colonialism. This concept has become increasingly popular in certain academic circles over the last decade, and though often buried under pedantic sociological jargon. It's more familiar to Canadians than to many of us that are living in the US, so it is worth defining succinctly here. What African-American scholar Gerald Horn calls the historical apocalypse of settler colonialism represents a distinct type of colonialism that functions through the replacement of indigenous populations with an invasive settler society that over time develops a distinctive identity and sovereignty. Settler colonial states include Canada, the United States, Australia, and South Africa. Settler colonizers come to stay, unlike other colonial agents, and intend to permanently occupy and assert sovereignty 
over indigenous lands, end quote. So we want us all to really wrap our heads around this definition. It is a little bit abstract, so we want to illustrate this, quote, coming and staying mentality with an example. Settler colonialism can be illustrated through a simple story, an exchange that we had just three weeks ago at my brother's 70th birthday party. Nice party. His wife is a descendant of the Robinson family of Orange County, Southern California, one of the early settlers there. What once was beautiful chaparral foothills has now been completely destroyed, developed into suburban trophy homes. The developer's brochure invokes the essence of a settler colonial cosmology, boasting, quote, click, where Native Americans once lived, schools, shopping centers, and residential neighborhoods now stand. Neat, simple, opaque, end of story. So I asked my sister-in-law, about what she knew of the history of the ranch. You're too far ahead of me. <clears throat> Which she grew up on 65 years ago. Robinson was my great-grandfather, she said. He came down from Northern California and got land in the 1850s. She didn't know how he got it. I found out that he'd procured cheap railroad and homestead land sold at auction in 1883. Then he cleared it and built a ranch, she continued. There was nothing there. My brother, who was the birthday boy, stepped in cautiously. <laughs> Except Indians? He asked. No, she retorted sharply. I don't think there were any Indians there then. Awkward silence. Neat, simple, opaque. End of story. End of conversation. Here is a map of the villages of the Atchachemen, the indigenous inhabitants, who weren't there then, according to my sister-in-law, in this part of what is now known as Orange County. Our brief exchange with her further illustrates the central character, the central character of North American settler colonial culture. We might call it an epistemology of unknowing. Okay, another fancy word. Epistemology is just the study of how we know what we know. So most settlers don't know about past and present violations of colonization and don't know what or why we don't know and above all don't really care about knowing or not knowing. This widespread and normative symptom of settler innocence has been called by some scholars colonial agnosia. This lack of acknowledgement or engagement with a colonial history or present is not, these scholars argue here, simply a matter of collective amnesia or, or omission. The magnitude of this disavowal is not primarily a matter of a forgotten or hidden past. Rather, this act of ignoring is aggressively reproduced affectively invested, meaning it inhabits our emotions and our spirituality, 
and effectively distributed through our educational systems and media in ways that justify the status quo and render unintelligible the entanglements of colonization. Okay, I know, like I say, scholarship can get a bit pedantic and dense, but these are important concepts to understand. You, you know the term agnostic, someone who just doesn't know. Well, agnosia is one of the central diseases, and we are going to challenge that disease, not just out there, but right in ourselves. Worse, my poor sister-in-law's agnosia unconsciously fell back upon an alternative devised history in asserting that she didn't think there were any Indians there at that time when her great-grandfather founded Robinson Ranch, she unwittingly recapitulated the terra nullius principle of medieval doctrines of discovery, which has been uttered by settlers so repeatedly in so many ways, in so many places, that is now simply assumed. Now, as we noted a few minutes ago, settler colonialism lies at the roots of Dr. King's giant triplets. How? Well, let's take our example. Here's what conveniently disappeared under the surface of my sister-in-law's narrative. One, Robinson Ranch was built on indigenous land that had been claimed and colonized by Spain a hundred years earlier, then taken as spoils from the U.S. war with Mexico three decades prior. In other words, it was a production of militarism. Remember, we're thinking of King's triplets here. Two, the Akachemen communities are invisible in all accounts, settler accounts, of the history of Robinson Ranch. And moreover, those descendants of these tribes have no access to that land today. In other words, it was and is a production of racism. And thirdly, the profits from that land, first from cattle ranching, then from gated communities for the rich, were and are predicated on privatizing extraction of resources, in other words, a production of extreme materialism. Dr. King's three triplets. You following? At the root of King's triplets lies settler colonialism. Indeed, Dr. King himself uh, understood how these triplets are the pillars of settler colonialism then and now. You see it in his quote here, our nation was born in genocide, he wrote in 1963, well more than 55 years ago, when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. Even before there were large numbers of Negroes on our shore, the scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society, and we have still not permitted ourselves to feel remorse for this shameful episode. So, okay, King got it. Most of us don't. We don't understand the roots of these triplets in the legacy of the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria, the Mayflower and the Golden Hind, John Cabot and Jacques Cartier, the Hudson's Bay Company and Robinson Ranch. Nor do we apprehend how we are damaged ourselves by this dehumanizing system, even if we've benefited materially from it which many of us have. Which is why we settlers of faith and conscience must reckon with agnosia. 
And that is what we're, we're about this week, building capacity to more deeply face settler colonialism, not just around us, but within us, within all of us. We'll emphasize over and over that the work of decolonization must engage not only the head and the hands, but also our heart and spirits. So I love this little meme with the brain and the heart. Our modest goal is to combat agnosia by encountering existentially our own history. This is something we North American settlers avoid at all costs. So here we'll make the first of many pleas to all of us who are immigrants, new or old, and settlers. Please, friends, show up to this conversation. You've spent money and time and energy and carbon footprint to get here uh, in good faith to do this challenging, difficult, but ultimately profoundly liberating work. And we're glad you're here. The great James Baldwin summarizes why this work is so urgent. White people, he said, are more famously more than half a century ago, are still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. He argues that to reckon with this history is not to drown in it, in shame, in paralysis, or in denial, but to use it for liberation. And he reminds us that an invented past cannot help us. It will only crumble under the pressure of this work. We would add the devised history of colonization does not, for the most part, reflect the stories of our families and ancestors. It is a myth we've been socialized to ingest and internalize. Our actual lived histories, however, are more interesting, more conflicted, more humane. History is not back then or out there, despite how we learnt it at school. It is something that we carry in our bones for both good and for ill. Critical consciousness of who we are requires understanding ourselves as a product of the historical processes to date. This is Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, a political prisoner executed under Mussolini's fascist regime in 1973. The problem, excuse me, 1937. The problem, thank you, with the psychic legacy uh, of European colonialism, he wrote poignantly in his prison notebooks, is that this history has been deposited in you, has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. That is, it shapes us profoundly, but we don't know how and we don't know why. Our approach in this BKI process is to explore those traces, to reconstruct that missing inventory, but not through the official narratives of generals and prime ministers, rather through the stories of our own peoples and communities 
on the margins. We'll also explore what we call in our work our landlines, the narratives of and held by specific places where our people settled and where we live today. Ukrainian-Canadian historian Francis Swarfa refers to these as storied landscapes. This will be hard work because, as Swarva puts it, the set settler luxury of forgetting and the absolution of amnesia makes us afraid of our own past and of the contention it invites. Many of us will be tempted to sidestep the sharing process this week by saying to ourselves or to others, ah, I don't know anything about my family or immigrant past. Instead, we urge you to allow the questions to work on you. We gave you a whole host, a multitude of questions every day. Because as our gospel tradition reminds us, we can know the truth, and the truth can set us free. The late writer-activist Audre Lorde, whose birthday is tomorrow, challenged us to do our own work, by which she meant to deconstruct our socially constructed identities, both personally and politically. Our work is to investigate the traces of our history, despite the fact that, that agnosia has left us only silences. Our work is to revise, that is, to take another look at the devised and dismembered accounts of who we are, according to settler colonialism. So I guess this isn't our grandfather's week at church camp. Thanks. Over the past five months, we've spent hundreds of person hours discerning and designing, planning and preparing a process of personal and communal exploration for this week. We hope that you had a chance to look at the design model that we sent you um, <clears throat> and that is reproduced here. At the center of it all is our cohorts in which each of us will spend roughly three 20-minute periods connecting existentially with our immigrant and settler histories and present. In some respects, it seems like a lot of work to facilitate just an hour of personal sharing. But we think this deep dive into our stories in the context of a community of others doing the same thing is exactly what we need to do to probe the source of the plague and to journey to liberation in ourselves and restorative solidarity with those on the margins. Some of you here have done a lot of this work. Some of you, just a little. But all of us can go deeper. All of us can go deeper. So let's make the most of this opportunity. Where and who were your people seven generations back? The indigenous notion of being mindful of seven generations past and future may have, been, may have been so commodified in capitalist consumer culture that it seems a bit cliche, or like a laundry detergent. 
but it's still sacred wisdom, and it provides a helpful focalizer. If a generation is about 30 years, then seven generations back in this place where we sit now puts us in 1810, which is exactly when this valley was first being colonized by the Spanish. In 1810, this little hillside was roughly halfway between the Chumash villages of Sulukuki and Kasam Somoy. Oh, phew, Matthew's not here. I butchered it. <clears throat> the only Europeans were down at the mission. Game and fish and acorns were plentiful, and the creeks and river ran year-round. Julie can trace her people back seven generations, right here in this valley. But very, very few of us settlers can. Colonization has moved us around like pawns on a chessboard. It's re-engineered our identity. Thank you for stepping out while I just butchered a couple of Schumach names, Matt. Um, <clears throat> where and who we, for that matter, three generations ago? You may be wondering why we're bothering with what is such an impossible question for most of us to answer. Indeed, why take on a, such a vast topic as the history and legacy of settler colonialism? Isn't it more fun to watch Friends reruns? Uh, too, too old, Chad. Too Sorry, old. wrong generation. Too old, man. Perhaps, despite yourself, there is the well-trained voice of Agnosia whispering in the back of your head, just let sleeping dogs lie. Don't go there. Why bother? Interest, interestingly, this popular English idiom has quite a history. It goes back as far as Chaucer in the 14th century. It is not good a sleeping hound to wake. And it was often attributed to Robert Walpole, Britain's first prime minister in the early 18th century. Tellingly, Walpole grew rich investing in the South Sea Company's trade in the New World speculative market for slaves and exotic imports. It was in his imperial interests to avoid the dark dreams of those sleeping dogs, the nightmare of oppression and genocide. Two Canadian theorists call this the settler unconscious, right? The Jungian notion of the unconscious that many of you know through therapy and spiritual direction. The settler unconscious, which they say is one of transcendent denial. Transcendent denial. Under this foreclosure of knowledge, we must believe that history is in the past and that any and all harm, trauma, accountability has no real actuality. As a result, we settlers are literally sick at heart and soul, making it difficult for us to look at one another without weariness. Our work together is to continue our journeys to heal this sickness and to break through this weariness and let the truth set us free. Just to clarify, all of us who are not indigenous to Turtle Island were at one time immigrants. And insofar as we or our families or our ancestors came to stay, we are now settlers. That was a lot of words. 
Maybe this much more concise sentence can summarize for us settlers the orientation necessary for decolonization. Nikki Sanchez says, this history is not your fault, but it is absolutely your responsibility. As most of you know, Chad and I are working on a manuscript entitled Healing Histed Hist <laughs> That's how that's going, yes. We've been working on this manuscript for a very long time. Healing Haunted Histories, Decolonizing Settler Landlines, Bloodlines, and Songlines. We had such high hopes that our book would be published by now but a serious cycling accident resulting in a stage four concussion wiped me out for a better part of a year, uh, significantly impacting my ability to write. To encourage us though, Chris made this mock-up uh, featuring the artwork of past BKI artist in resident Robert Valianti Neighbors, and we really hope that this does uh, grace the actual cover. Is it there? Yes, it's right down there. Please take a look of it. Um, we do expect the book to be published by the end of this year, and you have already actually bought your copy. Uh, it is in your registration fee. I feel really great about telling the publisher that. We've already sold 100 copies. So we will delightfully mail this to you, hopefully in time for Christmas. Yay! <laughs> You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh.